Welcome back to The Incompetent Critic, presented by I'm No Genius. As always, I'm Eli, and today we are going to be reviewing all of the Harry Potter movies. The Harry Potter film series is one of the greatest film franchises of all time. The films and the books alike were able to capture the hearts of millions of people around the world, and they are still being discussed to this day. The story is full of beloved characters, malicious villains, and a whole lot of spellcasting. In 1997, when J.K. Rowling released the first book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the series became an instant hit, and every film studio in the world wanted to get their hands on the film rights to the beloved series. In October of 1998, the film rights to the series were purchased by Warner Brothers after Rowling agreed to a pitch made by producer David Heyman. The agreement was that Warner Brothers would own all of the production rights to the series, but Rowling would retain the intellectual ownership to the series. This meant that any changes to the original novels would need to be approved by Rowling before they hit the big screen. Now, at first, this agreement did benefit all parties involved when the original films first came out. But, as you'll see later on down the line, Rowling having so much control over the series eventually led to the downfall of the entire franchise. But, more on that later. That being said, the original eight Harry Potter films released from 2001 to 2011 are all timeless classics. I think the thing that is most impressive about the series is that it was able to demonstrate different storytelling styles and convey different emotions to the audience without feeling disjointed from one another. I'm going to be honest with you guys. The Harry Potter franchise may be the most solid, long-running film franchise ever conceived. It's very rare to see a film franchise maintain such a high level of quality from movie to movie. Even some of the most successful franchises ever like Star Wars and the MCU have had their fair share of duds. But this really cannot be said for the Harry Potter films. They may not be the greatest films ever made, but out of all eight movies, you would have a hard time finding someone that would say that any one of them is bad. It also helps that the films boast a collection of some of the finest British actors in recent memory. Young stars like Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, Rupert Grint, Robert Pattinson, and Tom Felton would eventually make their stars known in the world of film later down the line. But even looking past the talented group of child actors, these movies are absolutely stacked with talented adult actors. Let me just rattle off some of the recognizable names from this franchise. Alan Rickman, Maggie Smith, Robbie Coltrane, Michael Gambon, Ray Fiennes, Helena Bonham Carter, Richard Harris, Gary Oldman, Richard Griffiths, Fiona Shaw, Brennan Gleeson, and dozens of others. Every single actor embodies their characters so well that it's quite literally impossible to see any other actor playing the part. The only exception to this would be Dumbledore, but we'll get to that later. I know that saying a film is magical is kind of a cliche at this point, but these movies are truly magical. It's really astonishing how much preparation and care went into creating these movies. All of the sets and practical effects look amazing, and even the CG effects hold up pretty well after all these years. The creators of these movies made sure to spend a lot of time crafting the actual world that we would be seeing on screen. Locations like Hogwarts, Hogsmeade, and the Ministry of Magic have so much detail in their design, and it makes the audience feel that this fantasy world is a real place with real consequences. As you can probably tell, these movies have such a special place in my heart, and I'm so excited that I finally get a chance to talk about them. So without any further ado, let's begin with the first film in the series, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is a really good way to start off this franchise. The movie begins with Hagrid, Dumbledore, and Professor McGonagall dropping Harry off at his Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon's house. I'm going to ask this right off the bat. Why would they send Harry, a future wizard, 
to live with people who hate wizards. I know this movie tries to explain that Dumbledore wants Harry to be with his family, but is he not aware that Harry's aunt and uncle are terrible people? I mean, is there no wizard foster system that they could put Harry into? It would certainly be a lot better than the living situation that he would get with his aunt and uncle. Looking back on the series as a whole, this moment kind of feels like there were several other options for Harry, but Dumbledore just didn't want to deal with it. Kind of a crappy thing to do, Albus. Hopefully this won't become a pattern throughout the whole series. It totally will. After that, we flash forward 10 years and we can see that Harry's life is as miserable as we thought it would be. He lives in a cupboard under the stairs and he is forced to make breakfast for his rather obese family. However, this all comes to an end when Hagrid shows up at his house and drops the bombshell that Harry is, in fact, a wizard. After this, Hagrid tells Harry the truth about how his parents died. They were killed by a dark wizard named Voldemort, who disappeared long ago, but one day will make his return. The scene where Hagrid takes Harry into Diagon Alley was insanely cool. Seeing all the little shops and stores in the area was awesome, and it made me fall in love with this world even more. I fell in love with this world so much that when I went to Diagon Alley at Universal Studios, I almost passed out from geeking out too much. The scene of Harry getting his wand was awesome, and it inspired me to pay $55 so I could buy my own wand. It doesn't do anything, it's just a really cool stick. After this, Hagrid takes Harry to the train station to go to the most prestigious wizarding school in the world, Hogwarts. While he is on the Hogwarts Express, Harry meets fellow first years and future best friends, Ron Weasley and Hermione Granger. The Golden Trio is obviously one of the best parts about this series, and their performances in this movie are pretty good for the most part. I find it so cool that we got the chance to watch these actors grow up and mature as performers as the series went along. The trio fits into these three categories. Harry is the brave one, Hermione is the smart one, and Ron is the lovable goofball. These character types work pretty well in this movie, and I'm actually glad that we got to see the characters evolve as the story goes along. These characters spend so much time with each other throughout these films that it makes sense that they would rub off on each other at some point. Down the line, it's pretty cool to see them use skills that they learn from each other in useful situations. This leads to the characters becoming more well-rounded by the time the series comes to a close. Once the gang arrives at Hogwarts, Harry is introduced to the wizarding world and all of the people that live in it. Harry meets this little piece of crap named Draco Malfoy, and the film immediately reassures us that he is not a good person. Malfoy straight up roasts Ron's entire family bloodline and then gets sorted into Slytherin within his first two minutes of screen time. So it's pretty clear that he's going to be an antagonist for our heroes. After this, Harry and our heroes get sorted into Gryffindor and we get a rundown of all the important people in Hogwarts. Dumbledore is the mysterious headmaster. Professor McGonagall is the head of Gryffindor House and the second in command under Dumbledore. Hagrid is the groundskeeper at Hogwarts. Professor Quirrell is the seemingly shy and quiet defense against the dark arts teacher, and Professor Snape is the master of potions and head of Slytherin House. I'm just going to take a moment to praise the character of Professor Snape and the performance of Alan Rickman. Rickman put so much effort into being this character, and I love everything about his performance. Realistically, if someone walked up to me with that haircut and that outfit, I would not be able to take them seriously. But Rickman's performance is so good that he actually makes Snape feel intimidating. He's much more menacing in this movie than he is in the other movies. His performance in this movie is pretty dark, but in the other movies he's just really sassy. That's not even a complaint. I love this character in all of the movies. The movie really tries to build up Snape as the main antagonist for our heroes, and I feel that it accomplishes it pretty well. The film pulls it off so well that I found it hard to believe that he wasn't the bad guy when the movie came to an end. But we'll talk about that later. The Quidditch scene in this movie is actually pretty cool. The scene is so fast-paced, and it does a good job of conveying how dangerous this sport really is. 
Everyone is flying around all over the place. The Quaffle is zipping from one player to another. The Golden Snitch is going crazy, and it's a lot for the audience to take in. There's even a brief moment of foreshadowing when our heroes think that Snape is trying to kill Harry by knocking him off his broom. When Harry finally decides to stop standing around and actually go after the Snitch, the tension skyrockets. Harry eventually rides his broom like a surfboard and wins the game for Gryffindor by swallowing the Snitch whole. This is so hilarious, but it's also so on point for Harry's character at this point in time. Once we get into the middle chunk of the movie, the characters begin to get accustomed to the wizarding world and they begin to start poking their noses in places that they probably shouldn't belong. This becomes a common trend throughout the series. First, Harry and Ron rescue Hermione from a troll. Then the trio constantly visits Hagrid's house when they aren't supposed to. Then they see a three-headed dog in Hogwarts. Then they get sent out in the woods as a punishment for visiting Hagrid's house after hours. This plot point is kind of odd to me. Like, you caught these kids outside of the castle when they were supposed to be in bed, so you decide to send them further outside of the castle into the Forbidden Forest as a punishment? That doesn't seem to add up. By the way, I want to establish right now that Hogwarts is the most dangerous place on Earth. Here's a list of all the deadly things that are on the grounds of Hogwarts. The Forbidden Forest that contains spiders, centaurs, giants, and wolves. The three-headed dog that's in the basement of Hogwarts. The giant snake living in the walls. The constantly moving staircases that could kill a kid if they move at the wrong moment. And the overall lack of security against Death Eaters and other outside threats. Honestly, it's hilarious to me that this place was ever considered the number one wizarding school in the world. Pretty much every year, a kid either dies or comes very close to dying. It's insane! Anyways, while they're in the Forbidden Forest, Harry encounters a dark figure drinking unicorn blood, and Harry comes to the conclusion that the figure was Voldemort who is attempting to return. The rest of the movie is about our trio trying to stop that from happening. The final act of this movie is pretty cool, and it was nice to see all of the characters use their unique skills to move past obstacles. They first get past the three-headed dog, then they get tangled in these vines, and then Harry rides a broom, and then they all play chess. When Harry reaches the final obstacle, it is revealed that Snape was not the bad guy. Professor Quirrell was the bad guy. Apparently, Professor Quirrell is hosting Voldemort's soul inside of his body, and he's trying to steal the Sorcerer's Stone so that Voldemort can take his true form once again. This bait-and-switch worked pretty well, and it was actually a cool twist to see that Professor Quirrell's whole shy guy thing was just an act to mislead everyone. I will say that the final battle between Professor Quirrell and Harry is not very magical. There's no wands, no spells, just Professor Quirrell trying to choke Harry to death. It seems kind of barbaric. But Harry eventually defeats Voldemort because Voldemort touches Harry and his body turns to dust. It is later revealed that Harry has a love-based protection around him because his mother sacrificed herself to save him when he was a baby. At the end of the movie, Slytherin rightfully wins the coveted House Cup, but Dumbledore decides to award Gryffindor a bunch of points for no reason, and they end up winning the House Cup instead. I honestly feel bad for all the other houses at Hogwarts, who rightfully earn their points throughout the year, only for Dumbledore to play favorites at the very end. Not cool, Albus. Not cool. That being said, the ending to this movie was pretty satisfying, and it got me excited to see what would happen next for our characters in the next year. On that note, let's move on to Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is the worst movie in the series. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, because it's actually still pretty good. But one of these movies has to be the worst, and it's this one. This is the longest Harry Potter movie out of all of them, and the pacing is not very good. So let's go ahead and dive in. 
The movie begins with Harry being visited by Dobby the House Elf, who tries to convince Harry not to go back to school. Dobby is also the House Elf of the Malfoy family. This will be an important detail for later. Dobby eventually gets Harry in trouble with his aunt and uncle, and Harry is then locked in his room and is not allowed to return to Hogwarts. However, Ron and his brothers travel to Harry's house in their flying car and rescue him. This scene was pretty entertaining, and I'm sad that flying cars still don't exist in real life. Harry and the Weasleys travel to Diagon Alley and use a teleportation device called Flu Powder. This device is pretty cool, but I find it odd that Harry mispronounces Diagon Alley and says diagonally. Like, Harry's been to Diagon Alley before. You'd think he would know how to pronounce the place. Harry and Ron meet up with Hermione, and the trio go to a book signing by Hogwarts' new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Gilderoy Lockhart. I'm gonna say this right now, this dude is such a tool. Later on, it's revealed that he doesn't actually know anything about serious magic, and he took credit for all the feats of other wizards to make himself look better. I gotta give credit to Kenneth Branagh for playing an absolute doofus so well. While the trio are in Diagon Alley, they bump into Draco Malfoy and his father, Lucius Malfoy. So, this is the moment in the series when we learn about wizard racism. So, in the wizarding world, there are purebloods, halfbloods, and mudbloods. Purebloods are wizards with two wizard parents. Halfbloods are wizards with one wizard parent and one muggle parent. And mudbloods are wizards with two muggle parents. This is a really big plot point in the series because Voldemort's whole ideology is based on killing any wizard who isn't a pureblood. If you couldn't tell that Voldemort is just a wizard version of Hitler, this should make it obvious. Without anyone noticing, Lucius slips a mysterious book into Ginny's cauldron, and they all part ways. This will be a very important detail for later on. After this, Harry and Ron accidentally miss the Hogwarts Express, and they have the genius idea to drive Ron's flying car to the school. Obviously, the plan goes wrong, our heroes almost die, and they get in trouble when they arrive at Hogwarts. When the school year finally starts, the gang discovers a bunch of people around the school who are being petrified seemingly at random, and that someone is trying to open the mysterious Chamber of Secrets. The Chamber of Secrets is a place beneath Hogwarts that contains a giant snake that kills wizards who have muggle parents. The snake can only be controlled by the heir of Salazar Slytherin, one of the founding members of Hogwarts. And yes, I know what you're all thinking. This movie is about a giant, racist snake terrorizing our heroes. What a blast. The Quidditch scene in this movie is interrupted by a rogue bludger breaking Harry's arm and sending him to the infirmary. Professor Lockhart tries to heal the broken arm, but he accidentally makes all of the bones inside of Harry's arm disappear because he's an imbecile. Once Harry is in the infirmary, Dobby shows up and tries to convince him that Hogwarts isn't safe and he must go home, but Harry does not listen. That stubborn little boy. There's a brief scene where Professor Snape and Professor Lockhart host a dueling club, and it's pretty cool. We see Professor Lockhart get absolutely owned by Snape, who just uses a simple disarming spell and sends him flying backwards. While Draco and Harry are dueling each other, Draco summons a snake to attack Harry, and Harry uses a language called Parseltongue to talk to the snake. This leads everyone to assume that Harry is the true heir of Salazar Slytherin, and he's the one who's been terrorizing the students. So now Harry is desperate to clear his name. Harry and Ron use Polyjuice Potion to sneak into the Slytherin common room to question whether or not Draco is the true heir. To their disappointment, he is not. After this, Harry finds a mysterious diary that once belonged to a former student named Tom Riddle, who opened the Chamber of Secrets about 50 years before then. Harry reads the diary and learns more about the Chamber of Secrets and the heir to Salazar Slytherin. After this, Harry discovers that Ginny has gone missing, and everyone assumes she has been taken into the Chamber of Secrets. 
Professor Lockhart is tasked with rescuing Ginny, but he tries to escape because he's a coward. Before he can leave, Harry and Ron catch him and they force him to take them into the chamber. While they are in the tunnels leading to the chamber, Professor Lockhart tries to cast a spell to erase Harry and Ron's memories. But he accidentally erases his own memories instead. What an idiot. Harry and Ron get separated and Harry enters the chamber by himself. Once he's down there, he finds an unconscious Ginny who is slowly dying. As he tries to figure out what to do next, Harry is unexpectedly approached by Tom Riddle, who is looking pretty good for a person who's supposed to be in their late 60s. Tom Riddle reveals that he is the true heir to Salazar Slytherin, and he is really Lord Voldemort's younger self. This reveal was pretty cool, but I gotta say I'm not a huge fan of Tom Marvolo Riddle being an anagram for I am Lord Voldemort. This means that in the Harry Potter universe, Tom Riddle made up the name Voldemort because it only fit this anagram, and that he would one day shockingly reveal it to someone. And in a meta sense, J.K. Rowling made up this middle name Marvolo, so the anagram would work. Like, Marvolo isn't even a real name. It's stupid. Anyways, Tom reveals that Lucius Malfoy gave Ginny the diary so Tom could manipulate her into opening the chamber once again. Tom tries to convince Harry to join him, but he refuses, and Fox shows up and drops the sorting hat in front of Harry. After this, Tom releases the giant snake, also known as the Basilisk, to kill Harry. After a few minutes of the Basilisk trying to kill Harry, the sword of Godric Gryffindor appears, and Harry uses it to defend himself. Harry is injured by one of the venomous Basilisk fangs, but he is able to kill the snake by stabbing it through the head. Despite his giant pet snake being dead, Tom gloats that Harry will die to the poisoning. Harry confusingly responds to this by taking one of the Basilisk fangs and stabbing Tom's diary. This then destroys Tom and revives Ginny. This is kind of a weird plot point. I'm not entirely sure why Harry would think destroying the diary would do anything, but I digress. Fox the Phoenix returns and heals Harry's wound with its tears. Harry and Ginny return back to Hogwarts and Harry visits Dumbledore in his office. While they are talking, they are interrupted by Lucius Malfoy. Harry accuses Lucius of giving Ginny the diary and tricks Lucius into freeing Dobby from servitude. This moment was pretty satisfying, but I find it odd that Lucius immediately tries to kill Harry after he is tricked. They are literally 20 feet outside of Dumbledore's office and Lucius tries to say Avada Kedavra right before Dobby steps in. Like, dude, that's not very smart. The ending to this movie was pretty sweet and it was nice to see all of our favorite characters reunited at the end. This movie was still pretty good, and I enjoyed seeing the wizarding world expanded a little more from a sociological standpoint. The inclusion of these different classes of wizards made the world seem more real and lived in. Not a bad movie, could have been a bit shorter. Now let's move on to the creme de la creme of the series, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I feel pretty comfortable saying that Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban is the best film in the series. The cast is stacked, the plot is amazing, the tone is much more serious, and it's directed by Alfonso Cuaron, the Oscar-winning director of movies like Children of Men and Gravity. This film has a much darker tone, which makes sense because the films are growing up with the audience. All of the performances are on point and the pacing is great. This movie has everything going for it, so let's not waste any time and get right into it. The movie begins with Harry blowing up his Aunt Marge. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, that may have been a strange sentence to hear. This scene is hilarious and it's such a great way to start off the movie. After this, Harry leaves his aunt and uncle's house and goes to wait at a bus stop. While he's at the bus stop, he is approached by a mysterious black dog. 
but the black dog gets scared away when the giant triple-decker bus called the Night Bus arrives at the bus stop. The Night Bus scene is also really funny. I love it when the shrunken head says, Take it away, Ernie! It's going to be a bumpy ride! Comedy gold. This movie does a good job of juggling tone for the most part. We get a few dark moments, then a few light moments, then a few dark moments, and the pattern continues. The balance of tone works pretty well in this movie because it maintains the sense of magic from the previous two movies, while also introducing some new darker elements that will become more prevalent in the later films. The night bus takes Harry to the Leaky Cauldron, and he's met there by Cornelius Fudge, the Minister of Magic. Fudge tells Harry that he will not be punished for using magic outside of school, and the Ministry has already purchased Harry's textbooks for him for the new school year. I guess Harry is on some, like, special scholarship program because he saved the Wizarding World a couple of times. Harry reunites with Ron and Hermione, and Arthur Weasley informs Harry that Sirius Black, a convicted supporter of Voldemort, has escaped Azkaban and may want to kill Harry. During the train ride to Hogwarts, the Golden Trio have an encounter with a Dementor, one of the Guardians of Azkaban Prison. Harry's soul is almost sucked out of his body, but he is saved by the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Remus Lupin. Lupin informs the trio that the Dementors were there searching for Sirius Black. From this point forward, Harry develops a serious fear of the Dementors. I really love Lupin's introduction. It makes him feel like a pretty competent wizard and a good person to teach the Defense Against the Dark Arts class. The trio arrives at Hogwarts, and Dumbledore gives his opening speech to the school. He says that the Dementors will be patrolling the school until Sirius Black has been found. I should probably address why Dumbledore is now played by a completely different actor. In the first two movies, Dumbledore was played by Richard Harris. Harris did a really good job in the role, and he brought a certain warmth and levity to Dumbledore. His performance works really well in the first two movies because it feels like Dumbledore is holding our hand while he introduces us to this new magical world. However, when Richard Paris sadly passed away in 2002, the role was recast and Michael Gambon took on the role for the rest of the series. Gambon brings so much more intensity to the part, and he really brings out the darker side of Dumbledore. This also makes sense in the context of the series, because the world keeps growing darker and darker and Dumbledore is trying to adapt. We also didn't spend a lot of time with Harris's Dumbledore. He was mainly in the shadows and only ever appeared when he spoke to Harry. But with Gambon's Dumbledore, he has a lot more screen time and we get to see him struggle with decisions that he has to make. Both of the actors are amazing in the role and they both bring out very different sides to the character. Thank you, Michael and Richard, for the wonderful performances. The scene of Harry riding Buckbeak the Hippogriff is one of my favorite scenes in the series. It feels so magical and epic with the music swelling as Buckbeak takes flight. I love this scene so much, and it's always fun to rewatch. Though, I will say it's not very safe or smart for Hagrid to let his students get so close to such a dangerous animal on his first day as a teacher. During the Quidditch match, Harry falls off his broomstick and has an encounter with a Dementor. His broomstick is broken in the process. This is such a sad moment because Harry and that broomstick have been through a lot together. After this event happens, Harry begins to go to Professor Lupin for lessons on the Patronus Charm, the spell that repels Dementors. I love these scenes between Harry and Lupin. You can really tell that Lupin cares a lot for Harry because he and Harry's father were really close friends when they were in school. And it's also refreshing to see such a good teacher in the Defense Against the Dark Arts position. I mean, in year one, we had a guy that was literally hosting Voldemort inside of his body. And in year two, we had an incompetent idiot for a teacher. So this is a nice change of pace. Shortly after Harry recovers, Fred and George give Harry a map of everything and everyone in Hogwarts. This is called the Marauder's Map. Harry then uses this map to sneak into Hogsmeade and meet up with Ron and Hermione. 
I love this brief introduction to the Marauders, and it's one of my favorite concepts in the entire series. I love the fact that Harry's dad, Sirius Lupin, and Peter Pettigrew were all in a group together, and they created a map dedicated to mapping out the entire school and everyone in it. It's so funny. Once Harry's in Hogsmeade, there's this funny scene where Harry uses his invisibility cloak to scare Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle. It's hilarious, and it's always nice to see Malfoy cry. Harry eventually learns that Sirius Black allegedly sold his parents out to Voldemort and murdered their friend, Peter Pettigrew. And I have to say that Harry's reaction to this is not very well acted by Daniel Radcliffe. The scene was alright, but then Daniel starts yelling and it just becomes hilarious. I mean, he goes like, He was that friend! It's so funny. The last act of this movie is an absolute roller coaster. It first starts out with our characters going back to Hagrid's house and seemingly witnessing the execution of Buckbeak. But before this, Hermione punches Draco in the face and it is so awesome. After this, Ron loses Scabbers and he gets dragged by the mysterious black dog into the Whomping Willow's underground passage that leads to the Shrieking Shack. Once everyone is inside the Shrieking Shack, we get a ton of reveals back to back. Number one, the black dog was Sirius Black the entire time. Number two, Professor Lupin is Black's best friend and is also a werewolf. Number three, Professor Snape went to school with Lupin, Black, and Peter Pettigrew and was bullied by them. Number four, Peter Pettigrew was Scabbers the entire time and he was the one who really sold out Harry's parents. And number five, Sirius Black is innocent and is Harry's godfather. Now, I know that sounds like a lot to take in all at once, but somehow the information is presented in such a natural way. We are slowly revealed one piece at a time until we can see what the full picture really is by the end. I love the scene where all of the adult actors are together and their performances are just bouncing off one another. I mean, Snape comes into the scene out of nowhere and he blends in seamlessly with the others. We can really feel the tension between Snape, Black, and Lupin, and the actors do a really great job of implying that these characters have a lot of bad blood between them. Gary Oldman is absolutely phenomenal as Sirius Black. In this scene, he really makes Black seem like a man who has slowly gone insane for being in prison for a crime he did not commit. And on top of everything, the Peter Pettigrew reveal works pretty well because of the light foreshadowing that we had earlier. Amazing scene, 10 out of 10. After this scene, we're expecting the story to be winding down, but after the full moon appears, then everything gets kicked into a different gear. Lupin transforms into a werewolf, Peter Pettigrew escapes, and the Dementors begin to close in on Sirius Black. Harry tries to fend off the Dementors with a Patronus charm, but he is overwhelmed. All hope seems lost until a mysterious figure appears and repels all of the Dementors away. Harry passes out and wakes up in the infirmary. Dumbledore tells the group that Sirius Black has been taken into custody. Again, another great scene, and it feels like the movie will end on a sour note, but then the real finale begins. Hermione whips out a device called a Time Turner, which she has been using to get to all of her classes on time, and she and Harry go back in time earlier in the day. While they are back in time, they rescue Buckbeak from his execution, they lure the werewolf version of Lupin away from our past heroes, Harry uses all of his strength to cast a giant Patronus charm to save past Harry and Sirius, and then Harry and Hermione free Sirius from captivity. I know that introducing time travel into a story is basically a guaranteed plot hole, but this film actually pulls it off pretty well. A lot of stories use time travel to change the past or create alternate timelines, but in this movie, time travel is like a giant loop and all of the events that happened were always going to happen. It ties up the stories very nicely and it leaves the audience having very few questions at the end. At the end of the movie, Lupin resigns from being a teacher and Harry receives a new broomstick from Sirius. 
The ending shot of this film is a freeze frame of Harry riding the broomstick, and it is iconic. I mean, his face is priceless. This movie is amazing, and it is so much fun to watch. I love everything about it, flaws and all. But anyways, let's move on to one of the most action-packed films in the franchise, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is a pretty solid movie. Now, when I was growing up, this was my favorite film in the entire series. The characters are great as always, and the plot is pretty good. But as I've grown up, I've started to notice a lot of the flaws that this film has. Don't worry, I'm going to talk about all of them. Let's get right into it. The movie opens with an old guy getting murdered by Voldemort, Wormtail, and an unnamed wizard, played by the incomparable David Tennant. Now, this opening scene absolutely scarred me as a kid. The old guy overhears Voldemort's evil plan, Wormtail weirdly looks him up and down, and Voldemort kills him by saying Avada Kedavra, which is the first time we have ever heard the spell in its entirety in the series. Keep this in mind, I'm going to talk more about the spell later. After this, Harry meets up with Ron, Hermione, and the rest of the Weasleys to go to the Quidditch World Cup. This is where we meet Cedric Diggory, played by the incomparable Robert Pattinson. I like Cedric's role in the story, but I honestly would have liked him more if he had more screen time. This is a movie where Harry and Ron are not on the best of terms, and it would have been an interesting plot point for Harry to become close friends with Cedric, but we never got that. And to be honest, we haven't gotten a lot of screen time for students in Hufflepuff or students who are older than Harry. Giving Cedric a more prominent role would have been a good narrative choice. Let him be a mentor to Harry, a person who could help him in the tournament. This would have made the ending more impactful, but we'll get to that. The World Cup ends up getting wrecked by Death Eaters, and Barty Crouch Sr. begins an investigation of the attack. Harry and the other kids go back to Hogwarts, and Dumbledore announces that Hogwarts will be hosting the infamous Tri-Wizard Tournament, a tournament that happens every five years, and only students above the age of 17 are allowed to participate. So that's like a pretty small window for students to be able to enter. I'm pretty sure J.K. Rowling just only wanted to do this tournament once in the series and never have to do it again. We get introduced to all the other schools competing in the competition. The Durmstrang All Boys Institute in Central Europe, and the Bo Batten's All Girls Academy in France. This is a funny detail, but when the Durmstrang boys enter, they have like a fire show and a bunch of them start breakdancing. But when the Bo Batten's girls enter, they just skip into the room and they make weird hand motions. This is also the scene where we allegedly meet Mad-Eye Moody, the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. I don't know if you guys have noticed this by now, but there is a new teacher in this position every year that Harry's in school. And this trend will continue after this movie, so don't worry. The students who will participate in the Tri-Wizard Tournament will be chosen by the Goblet of Fire. Students write their name on a piece of paper and drop it in the goblet, and the goblet will choose three students at random. This also prevents students from under the age of 17 from submitting their names. There's this funny moment where Fred and George try to put their names in and they are rejected and blasted across the room. After all the submissions have been taken in, Dumbledore draws three names from the cup, one student from each school. The cup selects Victor Crumb from Durmstrang, Fleur Delacour from Bobatons, and Cedric Diggory from Hogwarts. What a surprise! But after everyone celebrates the selections, the cup unexpectedly shoots out a piece of paper with Harry's name on it. Just when we thought Harry wasn't going to get into any trouble this year, after being aggressively questioned by Dumbledore and Crouch Sr., the adults come to the conclusion that Harry must participate in the tournament. This also doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I know that they said that the goblet creates a binding contract with the participant, but they never explain what would happen if Harry didn't compete. 
This feels like just another example of Dumbledore forcing Harry into a dangerous situation when there are many other options available. Nonetheless, Harry's in the tournament and Crouch Sr. begins an investigation on who put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire. The build-up to the first task was alright. Ron gets mad at Harry because he concludes that Harry put his name in the cup because he wants attention. This doesn't make a lot of sense either. Like, Ron should know that Harry does not care about being popular at all. I mean, he's proven that multiple times in the series so far. There's also a little mini-storyline of Rita Skeeter and the Daily Prophet spreading misinformation about Harry. This is kind of poking fun at how the media and the real world operates. It's not that much different when you think about it. There's a scene with Mad-Eye Moody teaching his students about the three forbidden curses. The Cruciatus Curse, for torture. The Imperius Curse, for manipulation. And Avada Kedavra, which is more commonly known as the Killing Curse. I do not like the inclusion of the Killing Curse in this story. This is gonna sound messed up, but this spell is such a boring way to kill someone. You say, Avada Kedavra, a green laser shoots out of your wand, and the person just stops being alive. There are tons of other more creative spells that a person can use to kill someone. This spell is just lame. That being said, Mad-Eye Moody gets a lot of good scenes in this film, and Brendan Gleeson absolutely hams it up every time he's on screen. We get a lot of development for Moody, and I hate that all of his character development is undone by the twist at the end. But we'll cover that later. Anyways, the first task begins, and each of the competitors has to face a dragon. Remember how I said Hogwarts is the most dangerous place on Earth? Do you believe me now? Harry is super unlucky in this case and ends up randomly drawing the most dangerous dragon out of all of them. He eventually defeats the dragon by flying around on his broomstick and stealing the dragon's special golden egg. This scene was pretty cool and it packed a lot of good action. However, I'm not sure why the dragon was going out of its way to kill Harry. Its goal is to protect the egg and it abandons the egg so it can fly after Harry. It's kind of weird. Between tasks 1 and 2, there's a dance to celebrate the fact that the competitors are not dead yet. A little morbid, but it's true. Harry and Ron squash their beef and struggle to get dates to the dance. Harry tries to ask Cho Chang to be his date, but she's already going with Cedric. By the way, Cho Chang is a pretty forgettable character, and her name is not even a real name. There's a lot of characters in this series with clever made-up names, but I think J.K. Rowling just came up with the name Cho Chang because it sounded like an Asian name. Anyways, the second task starts, and each of the competitors has to save a person from drowning at the bottom of a lake. Again, just another task that's extremely dangerous for 17-year-olds to be participating in. Each of the competitors must retrieve someone close to them at the bottom of the Black Lake in under two hours. I'm not sure what would happen if they failed this task. Like, would their loved ones just stay down there forever? That's kind of messed up, especially considering they didn't sign up for this tournament. But anyways, Cedric finishes first, Fleur gets disqualified, Crumb finishes second, and Harry finishes last, but because Harry saved two people instead of one, the officials of the tournament award him with second place. Aw, that's so nice. The lake task was honestly pretty cool, and it was kind of funny to see Harry almost choke on Gillyweed and Neville freaking out about it. Like, we love Neville. After the second task, Barty Crouch Sr. is mysteriously found dead, and Harry goes to meet with Dumbledore. Harry then views one of Dumbledore's memories from the past and witnesses the trial of Durmstrang's current headmaster. In this memory, it's revealed to Harry that the unnamed wizard who was with Voldemort from earlier in the movie is Barty Crouch Jr., the son of Barty Crouch Sr. Crouch Jr. is identified as a Death Eater and is sent to Azkaban. Harry exits the memory and realizes that Crouch Sr. may be plotting to kill him and assist in Voldemort's return. Despite the fact that the person who is in charge of the tournament just died mysteriously, the schools proceed with the final task. It's kind of messed up, honestly. 
All of the competitors have to navigate through a maze that shifts and changes like every two seconds. I swear, this school has a weird obsession with shifting architecture. First the staircases, and now this maze. But anyways, the competitors all enter the maze, Fleur gets knocked out by a bewitched Crum, Crum tries to kill Cedric, Cedric takes out Crum, Harry saves Cedric from dying, and Harry and Cedric reach the trophy at the same time. Harry and Cedric decide to touch the trophy at the same time and share the victory, but they are suddenly transported to a spooky graveyard. And thus begins one of the best finales in the entire series. Harry and Cedric try to figure out where they are. Harry begins to feel his scar burning as Wormtail emerges from the dark holding a messed up looking Voldemort in his arms. Cedric heroically steps in front of Harry to defend him, but he is tragically killed in the blink of an eye by Wormtail. Despite his somewhat wasted potential, Cedric's death is still heartbreaking to this day. Wormtail then drops Voldemort into a large pot, cuts off his hand, gets some of Harry's blood, and puts all of them in the pot as well, and starts to mix them. Voldemort is then resurrected in his true form, and is now played by the incomparable Ray Fiennes. The first scene with Fiennes as Voldemort is absolutely amazing. Fiennes is great in this role, and his introduction is one of the best villain introductions in the history of cinema. Voldemort delivers a five-minute monologue about how he came to be where he is. It's brilliant, and I love rewatching it. After Voldemort is done monologuing, he challenges Harry to a duel to the death. Harry is afraid at first, but he eventually builds up the courage to face him, like usual. They each cast their wand lasers at each other, and Harry is clearly overwhelmed. But just when he is about to lose the duel, the ghost of Voldemort's past victims arrive, and they distract him so Harry can escape. I mean, this is actually a pretty cool moment. Harry's parents and Cedric all pop out, and they distract Voldemort so Harry can get away. Harry grabs the cup and Cedric's body, and they are transported back to Hogwarts. Harry sobs as he tells everyone in the school that Voldemort is back, and Cedric was killed by him. The reaction of Cedric's father is so emotional. Jeff Rawl did a really good job in this scene. Now, at this point, it almost feels like the movie is coming to an end, but there is one more gut punch. Mad-Eye Moody escorts Harry away and reveals that he is not really Mad-Eye Moody. Barty Crouch Jr. has been using Polyjuice Potion to impersonate Moody for the entire film. He also reveals that he is the one that put Harry's name in the Goblet of Fire and set everything in motion. As stated earlier, I don't like this twist because it undoes everything we have seen earlier. I also don't like Crouch's whole plan to get Harry to meet face to face with Voldemort once again. They really didn't have to make Harry go through the entire tournament if they were just going to transport him against his will to the graveyard. They should have made Harry's toothbrush a portkey and transported him there after the beginning of the movie. It seems needlessly convoluted. I mean, what if Harry died in the middle of the tournament? The whole plan would have been ruined. That being said, the ending to this movie is pretty sad. Cedric is dead, Voldemort is back, and you can feel the tension in the air at Hogwarts. I mean, Harry won the Triwizard Tournament and is now filled with riches and fame, once again, and no one is happy for him. But despite this film's obvious sour ending, the film strangely closes out with all of our heroes saying goodbye to the two schools with whimsical music playing in the background. It seems like an odd choice considering that the entire student body watched one of their classmates die a couple days before. All things considered, this movie was still pretty good. It could have been great if it was a little less convoluted, but we got what we got. We are now entering the dark times in the Harry Potter series, so let's move on to Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is another solid addition to the franchise. This is where the war against Voldemort truly begins. 
and we get to see our characters prepare themselves for the battles ahead. It's a pretty enjoyable movie, but there are some points that are pretty frustrating from an audience perspective. I'll explain what I mean later. The film begins with Harry and Dudley being attacked by Dementors, and Harry uses the Patronus charm to ward them away. This opening scene is pretty exciting, and it serves as a good way to demonstrate that the tide is turning in the Wizarding World. And also, in the Order of the Phoenix video game, this level was impossible for me to finish. There's also this hilarious moment in the film when Harry and Dudley return home. Harry gets a letter from the Ministry of Magic saying that he is expelled from Hogwarts for using magic outside of school, and Uncle Vernon's reaction to this is priceless. His smile gets so big and then he just says, Justice! in a really smug way. Thank you Richard Griffiths for playing Uncle Vernon so perfectly. Harry is then put on trial by the Ministry, Dumbledore shows up in his defense, and Harry is exonerated of his crime. The Ministry was trying to convict Harry because they wanted to diminish Harry's credibility because they don't want people to think that Voldemort has actually returned, even though he has. There's a lot of corrupt government undertones in this film and will become much more prevalent as the story goes along. Anyways, Harry meets up with Ron and Hermione at the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix, a wizard organization formed by Dumbledore way back in the day. The Order discusses their plan to stop Voldemort from returning to power, and Sirius tells Harry that Voldemort is after an object that will give him the upper hand. But Sirius doesn't elaborate any further after that. This is a common trend in this movie, like adults just don't even bother telling Harry important information when he asks about it. We get a couple of heartwarming scenes with Harry and Sirius in this movie. Daniel Radcliffe and Gary Oldman do a really good job of conveying the father-son bond that they have with each other. After this, Harry and the gang go back to Hogwarts to start the new year. This is when we meet the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Dolores Umbridge. Let me just say, this woman is the most hateable character in the entire Harry Potter franchise. For starters, she isn't even a teacher that Dumbledore hired. She was assigned to Hogwarts by the Minister of Magic to keep tabs on Dumbledore. Her quote-unquote teaching methods are extremely cruel and her students don't even learn anything. Yes, that's right. In a class called Defense Against the Dark Arts, she does not teach her students how to defend themselves against the dark arts. There's also this one scene where Fred and George are playing with this sparkler ball thingy and she takes it away from them. She is literally the fun police in this movie. She's so smug all the time and she walks around like she's bulletproof because she's backed by the ministry. She's not physically intimidating at all, and it's so frustrating to see her gain more and more power as the story goes along. I mean, I gotta give props to Imelda Staunton for her masterful performance of this detestable character. Because Umbridge is not teaching the students how to defend themselves, Harry and the gang decide to form a secret group devoted to teaching defensive spells called Dumbledore's Army. The scenes of Harry teaching the students are pretty cool. Up to this point in the series, we haven't seen our characters be very proficient with spellcasting, but now we get to see them cast like a hundred different spells while in combat and it's pretty satisfying. I really love it when my favorite characters are really good at stuff. I don't know what it is. Harry has a lot of experience against dark magic and it's nice to see him use the skills he acquired to teach others. There's also a bunch of funny scenes of Filch and the Slytherins trying to spy on Harry's group. I mean, Filch literally creeps around like he's the Pink Panther as he tries to spy on these kids. These guys are such morons and it's hilarious to watch. Around the middle part of the movie, Harry begins getting visions of Voldemort committing terrible acts against his loved ones. Dumbledore fears that these visions are infecting Harry's mind, so he has Harry train with Professor Snape so he can combat these visions. These scenes with Harry and Snape are so good, and they really help in developing Snape's character a lot more. 
We've always seen Snape as this heartless teacher who's always mean to Harry, and it's a bit one-note. But now we see a bit of his backstory, and we begin to empathize with him a lot more. We also see that Harry's father was not really the kind-hearted person that we always assumed he was. This is crucial for Harry's development, too, because now he sees that there are two sides to every coin, and that there are things that are happening that he doesn't see. Speaking of which, we do not see a lot of Dumbledore in this movie. For me, this is another frustrating part of the story. I understand that Dumbledore has a lot of stuff on his plate, but it would be nice if he gave Harry a small explanation of why he's been so absent. Up until the final act of the movie, Dumbledore just gives off the attitude that he doesn't really care about Harry at the moment and he has bigger stuff to worry about. This is kind of a weird mindset to have since Harry is the key to all of his plans. But we'll get to that later. Before the final act of this movie, we see small moments of Voldemort's army growing larger and larger, and we see that Bellatrix Lestrange, Sirius's deranged cousin, has been broken out of Azkaban by Death Eaters. She will become a major part of the story later on, so just buckle up. The final act begins with Harry seeing a vision of Voldemort torturing Sirius at the Ministry of Magic. The gang tries to escape, but they first have to lure Umbridge out into the Forbidden Forest. Once she is out there, she realizes that it's a trap and she is carried away by a herd of centaurs. This is an extremely satisfying moment. I hate her. After this, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Neville, Luna, and Ginny all go to the Ministry to rescue Sirius. Once they arrive at the Ministry, they discover that Sirius is not really in danger and it was a setup by Voldemort. Harry grabs a bottled prophecy with his name on it, and the group is ambushed by Lucius Malfoy, Bellatrix Lestrange, and a bunch of other Death Eaters. Lucius reveals that the prophecy holds all of the answers to Harry's future, and Voldemort wants it so that he can kill them a lot easier. However, as soon as Lucius has his hands on the prophecy, Sirius, Lupin, Tonks, Mad-Eye Moody, and Kingsley Shacklebolt arrive to fight off the Death Eaters. There's this awesome moment where Sirius makes his grand entrance, punches Lucius in the face, and breaks the prophecy. And as it turns out, this moment wasn't even scripted. This moment was suggested by Gary Oldman, and they all went with it. That's awesome to see. The battle between the Order of the Phoenix and the Death Eaters is so cool. This is the first time we get to see large groups of experienced wizards duel against each other, and it is so awesome to see. The battle goes on for a while, everyone's casting spells, and it goes in the favor of the good guys until Bellatrix cheap shots Sirius and uses the killing curse on him. This moment is absolutely devastating because we have seen the relationship between Harry and Sirius and how much they mean to each other. Harry's reaction to his death is so hard to look at. Harry just watched another member of his family be murdered right in front of him, and Daniel Radcliffe expertly conveys the sadness and anger that comes with a moment like this. Shortly after this, Harry becomes enraged and chases after Bellatrix, but he is stopped when Voldemort arrives. But before Voldemort can kill Harry, Dumbledore shows up, and thus begins the most epic duel in the entire series. Usually in these movies, the duels consist of two wizards shooting different colored lasers at each other until one of them wins, but this duel puts all of them to shame. We start off with the usual wand laser shooting, but then the duel takes a drastic turn when Voldemort breaks the connection and summons a dragon made of fire to attack Dumbledore. Dumbledore responds by harnessing all of the water in the room and enclosing Voldemort in a giant ball of floating H2O. High quality H2O. Voldemort breaks the spell and essentially shoots the essence of death at Dumbledore, but Dumbledore is able to repel it. The duel destroys the entire ministry and Voldemort realizes that he can't beat Dumbledore in a straight fight. 
So Voldemort then possesses Harry's body and tries to get Dumbledore to kill Harry. And quick note, there's this brief moment where Voldemort just cheeses at the screen while he's possessing Harry, and he's fidgeting all around. It's kind of funny, honestly. However, Harry uses the skills he acquired from Snape to drive Voldemort out of his body. The Ministry officials arrive, and they now have unmistakable proof that Voldemort has returned. Voldemort and the rest of the Death Eaters escape, and the battle ends. In the aftermath of the battle, the Ministry admits that Voldemort has returned, Cornelius Fudge resigns, and Umbridge is dismissed from Hogwarts. Thank God! Once they are back at Hogwarts, Harry mourns the death of Sirius, and Dumbledore reveals the prophecy that Voldemort was after. Neither can live while the other survives. This means that either Harry or Voldemort must die for the other to live on. Despite all of the death and destruction over the past year, Harry leaves Hogwarts and says goodbye to his friends, content that he has something worth fighting for. Overall, this movie was pretty good. This was the first film directed by David Yates, and he directed the rest of the films in the series from this point onward. The tone of this movie is very dark, and there are very few scenes of people actually having a good time. This makes sense within the context of the story, because the Wizarding World should be devastated by the return of Voldemort. The villains are great in this movie. We learn more about the politics of the Wizarding World, and it sets up the battle against Voldemort pretty well. Now, let's move on to the next film, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I'm gonna be honest with you guys, I have the least to say about Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. It's a pretty light-hearted movie, which is kind of shocking considering that the Wizarding World is being terrorized by Voldemort and the Death Eaters. That being said, the film does tackle some pretty heavy plot points in the grand scheme of things, so let's just get on with it. The film begins with Narcissa Malfoy, Draco's mom, and Bellatrix Lestrange meeting with Snape and Nocturne Alley. They reveal that Draco has been chosen by Voldemort to kill Dumbledore, and immediately after this, they force Snape to vow that he will kill Dumbledore if Draco fails to do so. So right out of the gate, we're starting with some pretty heavy stuff. The main plot of this movie revolves around Draco and Snape plotting to kill Dumbledore at the right moment, and it feels kind of weird given the circumstances. Draco's role in the story has been pretty small up to this point. He occasionally pops up as a minor antagonist to our heroes, and his screen time is always limited. In the past three movies, he was punched in the face by Hermione, turned into a ferret, and acted like a moron with Filch. At this point in the story, it's really hard for the audience to take him seriously as a villain. Granted, Tom Felton does do a pretty good job of displaying his inner conflict that Draco has. His final scene in the movie is extremely well acted, and I gotta give him props for that. Harry meets up with Dumbledore, and they go to Horace Slughorn's house to convince him to be the new Professor of Potions at Hogwarts. This title was previously held by Snape, but he has been named the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher for the new year. And by this point, you should just know right away that Snape will not be in this position by the time the year comes to an end. Slughorn plays a pretty major role in this story, and he brings a nice dose of levity to the more serious parts of the movie. Dumbledore tells Harry to become close with Slughorn so he can gain information from him about his former student, Tom Riddle. After this, Harry meets up with Ron and Hermione, and they go to Diagon Alley. While they are there, they see Draco hanging out with a bunch of Death Eaters, and Harry begins to suspect that he has become one of them. That's some impressive detective work, Harry. I mean, it's pretty obvious that Draco's a Death Eater. I honestly don't know why he's just hanging out with them in public for everyone to see. I mean, Draco's father got sent to Azkaban for being exposed as a Death Eater, so he should probably be a little bit more discreet when he's around them. But anyways, Harry and the gang arrive at Hogwarts, and the tone of the movie shifts drastically. Up to this point, it's been pretty serious and has tackled a lot of heavy stuff. 
but once everyone gets to Hogwarts, it becomes a cheesy comedy fest. It first begins when Harry and Ron fight over the last good textbook in potions class. Harry ends up losing and gets stuck with an old potions textbook that says Property of the Half-Blood Prince. This will become very relevant later. The book has a lot of useful information for everything magic related. Obviously, the book was written by a very smart and innovative wizard who had long-term access to the potions classroom. Gee, I wonder who that could be. In the class, Harry uses the book to win a potions contest, the prize of which is a small vial of a potion called Liquid Luck. The general concept of the potion is that you drink it and everything goes your way for about 12 hours. And I'm sorry if I'm reading into this too much, but wouldn't this potion be useful when you're fighting against Voldemort? I mean, it feels like a pretty useful potion to have when you're fighting against the Dark Lord of Magic. You know, the guy who can't be killed. I mean, seriously, just have everyone do a shot of this stuff and go kill Voldemort. It'll take five minutes at most. But anyways, after this, Ron decides to join the Quidditch team and begins dating a girl named Lavender Brown, which upsets Hermione because of her feelings for Ron. While Harry is comforting her, he reveals that he has feelings for Ginny Weasley. And this is where I give my biggest complaint about the series. Harry and Hermione should have been a couple. They have so much chemistry together, and I love every scene where it's just the two of them talking. The two of them bounce off of each other really well, and I honestly don't know if I should praise or criticize the performances of Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson for making me feel this way. I know that in the books, the relationship between Ron and Hermione is fleshed out over a longer period of time, but in this series, it just kind of pops up randomly in this movie. And Harry having feelings for Ginny doesn't make a lot of sense either. She hasn't had a lot of screen time so far in the series, and she has had no scenes where it's just her and Harry talking. Again, this pops up out of nowhere. It kind of feels like the movies forgot to develop these relationships earlier in the story, and they're just rushing to get the movies back on pace with the books. I don't mind the cheesy teenage comedy scenes in this movie, they're honestly pretty entertaining. But I think it would have helped the overall pacing and the tone of this film if these scenes were just a little bit shorter and toned down the comedy by about 10%. At the middle point of the movie, Harry spends Christmas at the Weasley house, and the house is attacked by Death Eaters. Harry comes face to face with Bellatrix Lestrange, but she gets away before Harry can attack her. The battle between the Weasleys and the Death Eaters is pretty cool, and the cinematography is very good. The battle ends with the Death Eaters burning down the Weasley family home. This is kind of a sad moment, but I know the Weasleys can rebuild their house pretty quickly because, you know, magic. When the gang returns to Hogwarts, Harry tries to get the information about Voldemort from Professor Slughorn, but he is unsuccessful. Ron ends up getting poisoned by drinking a glass of mead that Slughorn meant to give to Dumbledore as a gift. While Ron recovers in the infirmary, Harry confronts Draco thinking that he poisoned the mead. Again, some pretty impressive detective work, Harry. Harry and Draco have a duel in the boys' bathroom, and Harry ends up winning the battle by using a random spell that he found in the Half-Blood Prince book. Shockingly, this spell mortally wounds Draco, and Snape has to step in to heal him. I'm not sure why Harry would just start throwing out random spells in a duel against Draco. I mean, what did he think was going to happen? After this, Ginny convinces Harry to get rid of the book because it contains dark magic. As Harry disposes of the book, he closes his eyes, and Ginny gives him a kiss. Despite the lack of chemistry between these two actors, the scene is actually pretty sweet. Shortly after this, Harry decides to drink the vial of liquid luck and goes to visit Slughorn. After a rather long scene of him goofing off with Slughorn and Hagrid, Harry convinces Slughorn to reveal the information that he knows about Voldemort. 
Harry views one of Slughorn's memories, and he sees that while Voldemort was still a student at Hogwarts, he was plotting to split his soul into seven Horcruxes, which are basically objects that store pieces of your soul so you can live forever. Dumbledore reveals that two of the Horcruxes have already been destroyed. The Ring of Marvolo Gaunt, the grandfather of Voldemort, and the Diary of Tom Riddle. And yes, this is a huge retcon for the Chamber of Secrets. It doesn't make a lot of sense that Voldemort's followers would be so careless with the objects that literally house his soul. I mean, Lucius Malfoy gave the diary to a clueless 11-year-old girl and expected to get it back in just one piece? I'm not buying it. Anyways, Dumbledore convinces Harry to help him look for another one of the Horcruxes, Salazar Slytherin's locket. Dumbledore takes Harry to a distant cave to retrieve the locket. So the locket is buried underneath this like mysterious liquid that tortures people, and Harry has to force Dumbledore to drink it. This scene is extremely powerful. Dumbledore drinks and drinks and grows weaker by the second. Eventually, Harry retrieves the locket, but is attacked by these cave monsters that emerge from the water surrounding them. As Harry is pulled underneath the surface of the water, Dumbledore rises and fends off the monsters by casting large rings of fire from his wand. This scene is absolutely epic and serves as Dumbledore's last stand before his time eventually runs out. Michael Gambon's performance is out of this world as usual. Harry then takes the exhausted Dumbledore back to Hogwarts and the pair are confronted by Draco and a bunch of Death Eaters. Draco raises his wand to kill Dumbledore, but he can't bring himself to do it. There is still good in him, after all. Shortly after this, Snape arrives and Dumbledore begins to plead for his life. Snape then tragically kills Dumbledore with the killing curse and Dumbledore falls out of his high tower. Such a devastating scene for a beloved character. Harry tries to chase after Snape and fight him, but Snape counters all of his spells. Snape then reveals that he is the Half-Blood Prince who wrote Harry's potions book. Snape, Draco, and the Death Eaters escape as the school mourns the death of Dumbledore. As the movie comes to a close, Harry discusses the Horcruxes with Ron and Hermione and reveals that the locket he has is a fake. The movie comes to an end with the trio deciding to forego their final year at Hogwarts and go on a quest to find the rest of the Horcruxes and destroy them to defeat Voldemort. Overall, this film is alright. As stated before, it handles some pretty serious plot points, but it decides to present them in very strange ways. This is the movie where Snape betrays and kills Dumbledore, but it's also the movie where a kid pukes on his shoes at a party. The tone of this movie is all over the place. There are scenes of laugh-out-loud comedy right next to scenes of tear-jerking sadness, and it feels pretty disjointed. That being said, there is still a lot to enjoy from this movie. The comedy scenes work pretty well and I found myself laughing a lot more than I usually do for these movies. It would work a lot better if they weren't intercut with scenes of Snape and Draco plotting to kill Dumbledore, but I digress. Now let's move on to the first part of the two-part finale to the series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 is an underappreciated part of the Harry Potter series. When this movie came out, there was a big trend in Hollywood of film franchises breaking their final installment into two movies. This technique was mainly used so that film franchises could milk more money out of their film franchises that were coming to an end. That being said, I think splitting up the last Harry Potter book into two movies works pretty well within the context of the story. Part 1 is very slow and focuses on the characters within the story, and Part 2 is a lot faster paced. I'll talk about Part 2 after this, but for right now, let's begin with Part 1. The movie begins with Voldemort and the Death Eaters meeting up at Malfoy Manor. While they are there, they kill a professor from Hogwarts and they begin to hatch a plan to kill Harry. 
This scene is pretty cool, and it's pretty terrifying to see that everything in the Wizarding World is slowly going downhill because of Voldemort. Also, there's this funny moment where Voldemort takes Lucius Malfoy's wand and breaks it in front of him. Jason Isaac has the best facial expressions. After this, we get a couple of scenes of Harry and Hermione saying their goodbyes to their families. Hermione erases her parents' memories so that they won't remember her when she's gone, and Harry tells the Dursleys to move somewhere far away. In the extended edition of this movie, we get a longer scene of Harry telling them goodbye. He has a couple of somewhat heartwarming scenes with Dudley and his Aunt Petunia. I really like these scenes because it shows that these cruel people did have some good in them and they did sort of care about Harry. I really like Dudley's last line before they leave. I don't think you're a waste of space. This is about as close as a compliment that Harry is ever going to get from these people, and it's really nice to see. Anyways, the Order of the Phoenix shows up with Ron and Hermione and they prepare to escort Harry to the Weasleys' house. To confuse the pursuing Death Eaters, all of the members of the Order drink Polyjuice potions so they can assume Harry's appearance. This scene is pretty entertaining, and it's hilarious to think that Daniel Radcliffe had to act like all of these different characters take after take. The Order successfully gets Harry to the Weasley home, but Hedwig and Mad-Eye Moody are both killed in the process. I didn't really feel much for Mad-Eye's death, because after all, we didn't spend a whole lot of time of his actual character. Because if you remember, he spends an entire movie being locked in a box while Barty Crouch impersonates him. We see him pop up every now and then, but he dies off screen. Such a waste. Mad-Eye's death was alright. Hedwig's death honestly hits me harder because she has been with Harry through every film and she sacrificed herself so Harry could live. Harry and the gang go to the Weasley home and they begin to set up a wedding for Bill Weasley and Fleur Delacour. I honestly don't know why they are having a public wedding while the Death Eaters are trying to kill them. It seems a little unsafe. Before the wedding, the new Minister of Magic arrives and presents our golden trio with some gifts. Harry receives the first golden snitch that he ever caught, Ron receives Dumbledore's Deluminator, and Hermione receives a book of fairy tales. Don't worry, these will all become important later. While the wedding is taking place, the whole area is attacked by Death Eaters. What. A. Shocker. During the attack, our characters learn that the Minister of Magic has been killed and the Ministry has fallen under the rule of Voldemort. The Golden Trio manages to escape before they are captured. The rest of the movie mainly focuses on the trio of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and we don't see many of the other heroes from here on out. The trio regroups at the Order of the Phoenix headquarters and they discover that the real locket of Salazar Slytherin is located at the Ministry of Magic with Dolores Umbridge. Yes, as much as it pains me to say it, we have to deal with Umbridge again. The trio kidnaps three Ministry employees and they use Polyjuice Potion to assume their identities to sneak into the Ministry. The scene of the trio sneaking into the Ministry is a nice dose of levity to this pretty dark film. There's this moment where Ron has to pretend to be this lady's husband and it's priceless when the real husband shows up and Ron is wearing all of his clothes. Harry confronts Umbridge, knocks her out, and snatches the locket from her neck. Another satisfying scene of Umbridge getting defeated. As the Polyjuice Potion wears off, the trio narrowly escapes the Ministry, but Ron is injured in the process. Hermione takes the trio to a remote forest, and thus begins a long portion of the movie where the trio is just walking through the wilderness. This whole middle chunk of the movie is just the gang wandering from place to place trying to figure out how to destroy the locket and find other horcruxes. There's this small plot point that the locket slowly corrupts whoever is carrying it until they become evil. So, basically the one ring from Lord of the Rings. Ron wears the locket for so long that he gets really angry with Harry and Hermione and leaves them. This plot point is alright, but I feel like it was just added so there would be a reason for Ron to leave the group. As it stands, the whole evil locket angle just seems kind of arbitrary. 
Anyways, Harry and Hermione are on their own and they discover that they can destroy the locket with the Sword of Gryffindor. They decide to leave the wilderness to look for the sword, but before they leave, there's this really cute scene of Harry dancing with Hermione. This scene is just so adorable and it's probably the coziest scene out of all the movies. It's literally just Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson awkwardly dancing to a Nick Cave song, and it's unironically a beautiful moment in the entire series. It's just two people forgetting about all their worries and responsibilities, and just having some fun around one another. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire franchise, and it's further evidence that Harry and Hermione should have been together. They are so cute together. Why? Why aren't they together? After this, Harry and Hermione go to Godric's Hollow to look for the sword, and an old historian woman invites them into her cottage. The historian tells them of a man named Grindelwald who, many years ago, stole a wand called the Elder Wand, and the wand came into the possession of Dumbledore after he died. After the historian reveals this, she unexpectedly transforms into Nagini, Voldemort's pet snake, and attacks our heroes. Harry and Hermione are able to fight off the snake and escape with their lives. Our heroes go back into the wilderness, and one night, Harry sees a Patronus charm in the shape of a doe. Harry follows the doe, and it leads Harry to a frozen lake, at the bottom of which is the Sword of Gryffindor. Harry breaks a small hole in the ice and dives in to retrieve the sword. This part kind of confuses me. Like, why would you only create this tiny hole to dive in through instead of breaking all of the ice on the lake? Before he can reach the sword, the locket around his neck starts acting up and he almost drowns. But Ron shows up out of nowhere and saves him. Ron pulls Harry and the sword out of the lake and they attempt to destroy the locket. The locket shows Ron a bunch of bad visions so he won't destroy it, but this just enrages Ron and he destroys it anyway. I'm not sure why the locket was trying to make Ron upset, but the third Horcrux is now destroyed. The trio reunites and Ron explains that Dumbledore's Deluminator led him back to where Harry and Hermione were. The trio decides to go to speak to Luna Lovegood's father to ask him about the symbol of the Deathly Hallows and why it's been showing up all over the place in the film. The trio arrives at Mr. Lovegood's cottage, and Hermione reads a story from her book called The Tale of the Three Brothers. This scene is so good, and I love the visuals that we see as the story goes along. In this story, we learn about the three brothers and three elements of the Deathly Hallows. The Elder Wand, the Resurrection Stone, and the Cloak of Invisibility. Possessing all three of these objects makes you a quote-unquote master of death. This concept is pretty cool. But I think it's a little weird that Harry was gifted the Cloak of Invisibility when he was just an 11-year-old boy. I mean, he gets it as a Christmas gift and Ron just goes, Wow, an Invisibility Cloak. That's cool. Seems like a pretty subdued reaction to such a legendary item. Anyway, Hermione finishes reading the story and Death Eaters show up and begin attacking the house. The trio is able to escape the house, but they are immediately captured by a group of Snatchers. The Snatchers take our trio to Malfoy Manor where Harry and Ron are locked up while Hermione is tortured by Bellatrix Lestrange. Things don't look too good for our heroes until Dobby shows up and frees them. Yeah! Dobby's back, baby! This is the first time we've seen this guy since the second movie and it is so satisfying. A duel breaks out between the Malfoys and our heroes and Harry steals Draco's wand from him. What. A. Wimp. All of our heroes escape Malfoy Manor, but Dobby is mortally wounded in the process. Dying in Harry's arms, Dobby says his final words. Such a beautiful place to be with friends. Dobby is happy to be with his friend, Harry Potter. Dobby then dies, a free elf. This scene is the most heartbreaking scene in the entire series. Dobby was such a great companion of Harry's and he made a major impact on the story despite his limited screen time. Harry decides to give Dobby a proper burial, 
a fitting end to one of the best characters in these films. The film ends with Voldemort visiting Dumbledore's grave and stealing the Elder Wand. The most powerful wizard in the world is now even more powerful. This film is a divisive one amongst the fan base. Its slow pace and limited action made a large portion of the audience assume that nothing really happens during the runtime. I'll give you one thing, it's a lot of setup and exposition that will eventually be paid off in the next film, but I wholeheartedly disagree that this film was unnecessary. This film represents the calm before the storm in relation to the battle against Voldemort. If we ended the sixth film and immediately jumped into the story with our characters hunting down all of the Horcruxes and fighting Voldemort, the story would have been extremely rushed. This film focuses on the one thing that every Harry Potter fan loves, the characters. We get to see a bunch of scenes of our characters interacting with one another, and I love every one of them. Overall, this movie is super underrated, and it's one of my favorites in the series. Now, let's finish this journey and move on to the last film in the series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Part 2. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 is probably the most satisfying conclusion that this story could have had. The performances are amazing as always, the action is great, the payoffs are extremely satisfying, and virtually every storyline from the past seven films all get wrapped up. The film is very fast-paced, but there's still a handful of quiet, meaningful moments between our characters. I love this movie, and it is still one of my favorites to this day. So without any further ado, let's bring this series to a close. The film begins with an epic scene of our heroes breaking into Gringotts to access the bank vault of Bellatrix Lestrange. Our heroes have discovered that one of the Horcruxes, the cup of Helga Hufflepuff, is inside the vault and they need to break in. The heist begins in a really funny way with Hermione using Polyjuice Potion to take on the appearance of Bellatrix. This scene is so hilarious to me because Helena Bonham Carter is acting like Hermione who is trying to act like Bellatrix. It's so funny and Bonham Carter did a really good job in this scene. Anyways, the plan goes wrong and our heroes almost get trapped inside. But they grab the cup and escape Gringotts by riding a fire-breathing dragon through the ceiling. I'm pretty sure that after this plot point, the story has checked off every fantasy adventure cliche. Dark Magic Overlord? Check. Battling a giant monster with a medieval sword? Check. Tournament of Champions? Check. Magical Grandfather Tragic Death? Check. Quest to find the Ancient MacGuffins? Check. And now our characters are riding a dragon to escape danger. I think JK Rowling just wanted something exciting to happen in the opening act of this story and she realized that she hasn't made our characters ride a dragon yet. I'm not even criticizing, it was pretty entertaining. After this epic opening, our characters discover that the rest of the Horcruxes, Nagini and the Diadem of Rowena Ravenclaw, are located inside of Hogwarts, so they need to find a way to sneak in. They decide to go to Hogsmeade and they meet Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth. Aberforth opens a passage for Harry and the gang to sneak into Hogwarts. There's this funny moment where all of the Gryffindor students cheer for Harry's return, Ginny says hi to Harry and doesn't even acknowledge that Ron is in the room. Hilarious. Shortly after this, Professor Snape, the new headmaster of Hogwarts, how dare you stand where he stood, is alerted to Harry's presence and calls for the entire student body to assemble. Snape coldly threatens all the students until Harry and the gang make a dramatic entrance. Snape motions to attack Harry, but Professor McGonagall steps in and briefly duels Snape until he flees the castle. This scene is pretty cool, and I really like the subtle foreshadowing to the plot twist that will occur in the final act of the film. After Snape flees the castle, all of the people in Hogwarts prepare the school for the final battle against Voldemort. Harry, Ron, and Hermione begin to search for the other Horcruxes while they do this. There's this really cool moment where Professor McGonagall brings all of these knight statues to life. 
She caps it off by saying, I've always wanted to use that spell. It's so funny, but at the same time, they could have used this spell numerous times throughout the series. After being convinced by Luna, Harry goes to speak with the ghost of Helena Ravenclaw, and she tells him that the diadem is in the Room of Requirement. Ron and Hermione go into the Chamber of Secrets and destroy the cup of Helga Hufflepuff with a basilisk fang. I've got just one problem with this. Why is the skeleton of the basilisk still down there? Wouldn't the professors want to remove it so they could study it? I mean, it was a giant snake that was taught to be racist by the Dark Lord that terrorized your students for a whole year, and you just left its corpse down there? That seems a little bit odd. But anyways, they destroy the cup and the two kiss. The behind-the-scenes context to this moment is so hilarious but also so sad. Emma Watson has publicly stated multiple times that kissing Rupert Grint in this scene was the most uncomfortable experience she had while working on these movies. I know the two had basically grown up together and it's like they're siblings at this point, but come on Emma, why'd you have to do my man Rupert like that? After this, Harry locates the diadem in the Room of Requirement and he is confronted by Draco and his two goons. Draco moves in to attack Harry, but Ron and Hermione show up to defend him. And this part is kind of strange. Goyle responds to this by lighting the entire room on fire. Harry and the gang destroy the diadem and rescue Draco before they all burn up in flames. This would have been a nice moment to begin a redemption arc for Draco, but we never really got anything major like that for him. The movie just kind of ends without doing anything significant with Draco, and that's a shame because he's a really popular character amongst the fanbase. I think Tom Felton's performance is a large cause of that. After this, Harry discovers that Nagini is the last Horcrux and our heroes navigate through the castle to hunt her down. I haven't mentioned this yet, but the Battle of Hogwarts is one of the greatest battles ever put to cinema. It's actually kind of shocking that the battle is this good because it largely takes place in the background while our characters search for the Horcruxes. We get so many satisfying moments that don't take up large amounts of screen time. All of the professors cast a giant shield around Hogwarts. Aberforth casts a giant Patronus charm. Neville summons the Sword of Gryffindor. Molly Weasley kills Bellatrix. That last one is a little strange. I'm not sure why they chose Ron's mom to be the one who kills Bellatrix. Like, these characters barely have any history with one another. It would have made more sense if they had Neville kill Bellatrix, but we never got that. And at the end of the day, Neville doesn't even acknowledge that Bellatrix is dead. It's kind of strange. That being said, it was still a satisfying moment to see Bellatrix evaporate into a million pieces. After this, Harry, Ron, and Hermione go down to the boathouse and find Nagini next to Voldemort as he talks to Snape. Voldemort comes to the conclusion that the Elder Wand only answers to Snape because he is the one who killed Dumbledore, the previous owner. To rectify this, Voldemort cuts Snape's throat and flees the scene. The trio rushes in, and as he dies, Snape tells Harry to take the tears and use them as memories. Snape dies, and his final words are, You have your mother's eyes. Harry and the gang go back to the castle, and they find that Fred, Lupin, and Tonks have all been killed during the battle. A truly tragic moment that will only be worse in the scene after this. Harry goes up to Dumbledore's office and begins to view the memories of Snape. And this is the moment when Snape turns into one of the greatest characters ever conceived in fiction. All within a five-minute montage, Snape turns from one of the most hated characters in the series to one of the most loved characters in any franchise. We get to see all of Snape's backstory and how he was in love with Harry's mother when they were children. Snape grew into being a quiet and resentful person because Lily chose to love James instead of him. Following his time as a student at Hogwarts, Snape became a Death Eater and began to follow Voldemort. However, after Lily was killed by the Dark Lord, 
Snake came to Dumbledore and they devised a plan for Snape to become a double agent in Voldemort's army. Dumbledore had planned all along for Snape to kill him so that he would gain Voldemort's ultimate trust. Snape has been watching over and protecting Harry this entire time just because of his love for Lily. It's hard to put into words how much I love this reveal. Snape sacrificed years of his life so that he could protect the son of a woman who didn't love him back. Snape had always resented Harry because he was so much like James, but it was his duty to protect him because he loved Lily so much. I mean, the one shot of Snape holding Lily in his arms after she died is just heartbreaking. Snape's character arc is the best in the entire series. He went from a man who resented everyone and everything to a man who was willing to sacrifice his life for a world who wouldn't know him. Thank you, Alan Rickman, for this amazing performance, and rest in peace. In Snape's memories, the last thing that's revealed to us is that part of Voldemort's soul lives inside of Harry, making Harry an unintentional horcrux. Because of this, Harry says goodbye to all of his friends and goes to stand in front of Voldemort to be killed. Before this, Harry discovers that the Resurrection Stone was hidden inside the Golden Snitch that he's had all this time. Harry uses the stone to communicate with his past loved ones for one last time before he dies. In the touching scene, Harry speaks with his parents, Sirius, and Lupin before he stands before Voldemort to be killed. In front of all the Death Eaters, Voldemort casts the killing curse on Harry, but Harry suddenly wakes up in some sort of purgatory afterlife. The spirit of Dumbledore meets him and explains that Harry has fulfilled his destiny and destroyed the part of Voldemort that lives within him. He also explains that Harry can either go back to his body or enter the afterlife and be with all of his loved ones. This scene was pretty cool and it was nice to see Michael Gambon one last time as Dumbledore, but I wasn't a huge fan of the whole afterlife just being a clean version of the train station. That doesn't seem very creative. Back to reality, Voldemort brings Harry's body back to Hogwarts and begins an evil monologue. Voldemort tries to convince all the good guys to stop the fighting and join him. Draco joins his parents on Voldemort's side and they all flee the castle. Neville gives a triumphant speech about Harry and summons the Sword of Gryffindor in defiance. I love his final line of his speech, Harry's heart did beat for us, for all of us. Immediately after this, Harry wakes up from his quote-unquote death and the battle resumes. Voldemort and Harry duel all throughout the castle while Ron and Hermione hunt down Nagini. The duel between Harry and Voldemort leads both of them to the main courtyard of Hogwarts. The tension reaches an all-time high when Ron and Hermione are about to be killed but Neville leaps into the scene and decapitates Nagini with the Sword of Gryffindor. The final Horcrux has been destroyed. Harry uses the disarming spell to take the Elder Wand from Voldemort, and Voldemort begins to fade away into ash. This is an extremely satisfying moment, and our heroes have won the war against Voldemort. It's also really cool to see Neville, who's been one of the more lovable supporting characters, deal the final blow against the evil snake. The aftermath of the battle shows all of the heroes resting in Hogwarts, thankful that they're all still alive. Harry, Ron, and Hermione go out to the bridge in front of Hogwarts, and Harry reveals that he is the true owner of the Elder Wand. This means he is now the owner of all the elements of the Deathly Hallows. However, instead of using this ultimate power, Harry decides to destroy the wand and throw it all away. I have a minor problem with Harry being the owner of the Elder Wand. He reveals that the wand is not transferred through killing, but through disarming. Now, this would have been fine, but Harry never really disarmed Draco by casting a spell. He just ran up to him and took his wand. Doesn't seem like a very epic way to earn the most powerful wand ever created. But anyways, Harry throws the power away, and it's a happy ending for our characters. 
We flash forward 19 years and we see that Harry and his friends are watching over their kids as they leave for Hogwarts. Harry reveals the name of his son, Albus Severus Potter, named after Dumbledore and Snape. This is an extremely touching moment and a great way to honor two of the best characters in the series. But I gotta say that Harry's son is definitely gonna get bullied for having the name Albus Severus. I mean, can you imagine someone coming up to him and say, Yo, what's up, Albus? What are you doing later? All jokes aside, it was really nice to see that all of our heroes got a happy ending, and all the sacrifices that they made were worth it in the end. The series comes to an end with Harry standing with his loved ones, hopeful for what lies ahead. A perfect ending to a truly amazing series. That is until J.K. Rowling and David Yates decided to keep making movies. After the final film, the Harry Potter franchise was complete and was universally loved by both critics and audiences alike. The child stars of the films had risen to superstardom, Warner Brothers had a decade's worth of box office successes, and J.K. Rowling ended up with more money than the Queen of England. Everything was perfect until the executives of Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling decided that they wanted to ride this gravy train a little while longer. The first sign of trouble really began in 2013, a mere two years after the ending of the original saga. Warner Brothers announced that they would be expanding the world of Harry Potter with a prequel series of films titled Fantastic Beasts. To be fair, the idea of a prequel series starring Dumbledore sounds pretty appealing, but the execution was way off. The first film, released in 2016, was alright, and mainly focused on a beast collector named Newt Scamander. It was a solid addition to the series, but nothing life-changing. However, the second film, released in 2018, was riddled with controversy. For starters, the movie is not good. It was needlessly convoluted, and they tried to tie Newt Scamander's story into Dumbledore's story, and it just didn't work. And then the biggest controversy of all was the inclusion of Johnny Depp. Back in 2018, Depp was being accused of abuse by his former spouse, Amber Heard, and he was blacklisted from Hollywood. Granted, this controversy did not last very long because of the apparent misrepresentation of facts, but at the time, it was a big deal. The movie was panned by critics and grossed $200 million less than its predecessor. Hype for the series was at an all-time low, but Warner Brothers insisted on releasing a third Fantastic Beast movie. Released in 2022, the third installment performed worst at the box office and was disliked by critics. Johnny Depp was recast with Mads Mikkelsen to avoid controversy, but this didn't help the film's overall quality. After the lack of success with the third movie, Warner Brothers canceled plans for a fourth and fifth installment to the series. For me, the Fantastic Beast movies affect the Harry Potter series in the same way that the Star Wars sequels affect the original six Star Wars films, or even how the Hobbit trilogy affects the Lord of the Rings trilogy. These films don't ruin the films that came before it, but they definitely don't help anything either. The Harry Potter films were about an ordinary boy thrown into a fantasy world to defeat an all-powerful dark enemy. These films are about political corruption, finding weird animals, and gay love stories. These films have all the components to create a series that is really special, but they fail to capture the magic and wonder that the original films did. Seeing Harry cast spells filled everyone with excitement. Seeing a young Dumbledore doing magical karate makes people fall asleep. These films failed to capture what made the original films great, and my only hope is that they will be swiftly forgotten. However, despite their unsuccessful run, the Fantastic Beast movies were not the biggest detriment to the Harry Potter series. That title belongs to the original author of the series, J.K. Rowling. Like any celebrity that develops a massive following, they try to impose their beliefs on their followers. 
For J.K. Rowling, the money and the fame were simply not enough. She wanted to be able to move people through social media. In 2020, Rowling took to Twitter to express many of her, let's just say, controversial beliefs. Putting it lightly, these beliefs were not met very well amongst her fanbase. But it doesn't stop there. In addition to expressing political beliefs on social media, Rowling began to retcon several of the things that we have seen in the Harry Potter franchise up to that point. These retcons weren't even things that people were asking for. Let me read this tweet and you'll know exactly what I mean. Before adopting muggle plumbing methods in the 18th century, witches and wizards simply relieved themselves wherever they stood and vanished the evidence. Why are you like this? Not a single person alive wanted to know that piece of information. In addition to the controversial tweets and countless retcons, J.K. Rowling served as the head screenwriter for the Fantastic Beast movies. I'm sensing a pattern here. As we've discussed before, the movies weren't that good, and Rowling may have been better off staying as a novel author. And the worst part about all of this is that, to this day, Rowling retains creative ownership to the series. That means whatever she writes on Twitter or in the films, she is correct. And this is terrible for the series because some of her ideas, as of late, are not very good. Her constantly changing everything we love about the original films only taints their legacy and diminishes fan interest. So that begs the question, what is the legacy of the Harry Potter series? For me, I try my best to separate the original films from everything that came after. The first eight films truly felt magical and they've all built up to a finale that rivals Avengers Endgame in terms of conclusiveness. If the wizarding world of Harry Potter came to an end with Deathly Hallows Part 2, then I really doubt that anyone would have had a problem with it. But now we have a mediocre prequel series and eventual reboot on the way that will only tarnish the reputation of the original series. The only genuinely good Harry Potter content that we have gotten since the end of the original series is the 20th anniversary documentary, Return to Hogwarts. Despite lacking a narrative structure, special effects, or even a plot, the documentary was able to capture the hearts of viewers by focusing on the one thing that every viewer fell in love with, the characters. The film is a hundred minutes of great actors talking about the iconic characters that they played in a terrific story. The documentary served as a great epilogue to the series that we all grew up with. In films, we saw that all of our characters got their happy ending, and the documentary showed us that all of these great actors got their happy ending as well. And if that doesn't warm your heart, then I don't know what will. Let's be honest, people did not fall in love with the wizarding world of Harry Potter. They fell in love with Harry Potter. A classic rags-to-riches story about a young boy discovering that he has extraordinary power thrust into a world that he must save. It's a very simple narrative that everyone in the world can relate to. And Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling can do as many prequels, sequels, spin-offs, or reboots as they want to. Nothing will ever come close to the original films. To this day, the films have such a special place in my heart, and I would be insane to give the Harry Potter series anything less than a 9.2 out of 10. A truly magical experience that I am happy I got to witness.